Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show. So next movie, Jurassic Park, another huge, huge hit. And I was uh, watching something about the licensing of Jurassic Park paraphernalia after the movie and the money that was generated from T-shirts and video games and dinosaur toys and lunch boxes and all these other sort of things was just astronomical. The movie itself was pretty big budget for Spielberg and for the time was $63 million, but it made over a billion dollars in the box office. It was a huge, huge hit. Let's see. So Jurassic Park, I'll give a a quick overview of the story, again, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough. But quite frankly, the actors are irrelevant in this movie, right? You could have taken anybody and put them into those roles, I think. Some interesting casting what-ifs. Harrison Ford was considered for the role, uh, eventually played by Sam Neill, the, the main scientist, the paleontologist. And Sean Connery was considered for the Richard Attenborough film. So it would have been Harrison Ford and Sean Connery who appear in Indiana Jones 3 as father and son. Interesting idea. A couple of interesting choices for all of them. But the actors are besides the point here. I think for me, the only actor that left any kind of an imprint was actually Jeff Goldblum in this movie. I thought he was the only kind of intriguing character from my point of view. But anyway, so Jurassic Park is based on a Michael Crichton novel movie was being filmed before the novel was even finished spielberg and Crichton were working together on er talking about the you know, the wide range of spielberg's activities a really really huge television show from i guess early 1990s uh, it was a big thing launching the career of george clooney amongst others but you know spielberg said to Crichton, what are you working on he started telling about the book and spielberg immediately called the movie studio Universal next day and said, you need to buy this. So they paid Michael Crichton $3 million rights to the book before it was even finished. So in the book, in I'm sorry, in the movie, industrialist John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, has created a theme park of cloned dinosaurs, Jurassic Park, on an island off the Costa Rica coast, actually filmed in Hawaii. Uh, after a dinosaur Handler is killed by a velociraptor. The park's investors, represented by a lawyer, Donald Gennaro, demand that experts visit the park and certify its safety. One of the people chosen is a mathematician and chaos theorist, played by Jeff Goldblum. And the others are a paleontologist, Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and a paleobotanist, Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern. They quickly find themselves in awe of what Hammond has created when they you know, first see the big dinosaurs. And shortly after arriving, they're joined by Hammond's grandchildren, who are uh, Lex and Tim, a boy and a girl of 11 or 12 or so. But soon things start to go bad. Uh, they go bad because an evil computer guy played by the delightful Wayne Knight, who was Newman in Seinfeld, has decided that he is not making enough money and he wants to earn money from a competitor by stealing 
uh, some fertilized dinosaur embryos and giving them to a competitor. In order to do this, as a hurricane or tropical storm is bearing in on the island, he decides that he needs to shut off all the security measures that are keeping the dinosaurs in check and caged off so that he can get in, steal the dinosaur egg and take off. Well, of course, this leads to crazy things happening when you you know, do away with the security that's keeping a T-Rex and Velociraptors in a secluded part of the park. You're going to get trouble. And so they start going after our heroes. Some of the secondary characters get eaten. The lawyer comes upon a, uh, a rather grisly demise sitting on a toilet and being eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, a few of the others get killed in interesting ways. It all leads to a climax in the visitor's center where our heroes are saved kind of inadvertently by a Tyrannosaurus Rex who all of a sudden appears in the corner of the room uh, without anybody noticing, <laughs> uh, apparently, <laughs> and, and eats the uh, velociraptors who are trying to kill the scientists and the kids. And uh, so our heroes escape again to rousing John Williams' score in the movie. So let's see what else here. Again, big, big movie. The theme of it is when man plays God, bad things happen. Okay. Uh, one of the other themes is life finds a way, okay, which you know is kind of one of the observations about nature and that gets referred to over and over again. They start making the dinosaurs all female because they don't want them breeding. They want to control the breeding. And the point that the Jeff Goldblum character points out is that not life finds a way. And if you have all females, they're going to find a different way to breed, which they do do and leads to some of their trouble. Okay. Thoughts on Jurassic Park, guys? TJ. Yeah, it doesn't have too much of a story. It's basically just a thrill <laughs> ride. And it's also the basis for the Jurassic Park ride at Universal Theme Park in Orlando, which Steven Spielberg had a hand in helping design. So it's not as satisfying as a movie altogether in terms of character development, in terms of plot, but it is a thrill ride and it really does work. And yet again, like I can't imagine anybody better to film a T-Rex chase or a scene where a T-Rex is trying to eat two kids in a car. And one of the details, he makes us wait a long time to see that T-Rex. And I think that's something that he does a lot in his movies is there's a lot of anticipation of like, let's, let's hold off. Let's make it seem like I'm going to show you the dinosaurs so you can just see some rustling bushes. Then, oh, you don't quite see it. So same with Jaws. It takes a long time to actually right. see the shark. And one of the motifs that you see in a lot of Spielberg movies is shots of the characters looking at something with awe and wonder, and we, the audience, don't know what they're looking at yet. We just see their astonishment. That's, you know, looking at a spaceship in Close Encounters. That's, you know, looking at the Ark. Look, all of these things that we can't see. There's a lot of that in this. And it's huge fun. Like, it's great to watch on as big a screen as possible because, as you said, the stars are the dinosaurs, and something that's easy to forget now because it's so ubiquitous, the technology that they used for this, CGI, was brand new. This was the yeah. first movie using this kind of technology, and it was a big risk. And it paid off yes. in a really big way. I mean, it's used ubiquitously now, but at the time, huge risk. It could have looked terrible. So to make the whole movie hinge on this new technology, I think, fits in with another thing that's common with Sevens that I mentioned earlier. They're often early adopters of new technology. So he wasn't afraid to stake his career as a fantasy filmmaker 
on a piece of technology no, he'd never used and nobody had ever used. And similarly, something I read about him in some of his interviews is he had one of the first car phones there ever was. Mm-hmm. And he and a friend would get a kick out of like calling a girl and asking her on a date. And once they'd set it up, they'd reveal that they were in their car right outside her house. Right. Or he and George Lucas communicated by modem in 1982. You know, Lucas was in Northern mm-hmm. California. He was in Southern California. And then he loved video games. And I once saw a guy from Industrial Light and Magic speak at a film festival about how when Spielberg would come to ILM to supervise, you know, know, how's it coming with the special effects for whatever movie they were working on, they could easily distract him by just putting a video game controller in his hand (laughs) and he would just be a kid in heaven. Anything like that is like, oh, good, let me get in there. Let me figure out how it works. Let me play with it. Let me have fun with it. Let me figure out a way to make everybody have fun with it. And this might be the best example of that out of all of his work. The distractibility that you just referenced, that goes with the sexual subtype as well in Seven. I had an uncle who, back in the 1950s, he went into a health food store and was convinced to buy a bunch of vitamins. And he was a sexual Seven. He was aware of trends, but he was also hyper-suggestible. And he was talked into buying $60 worth of vitamins The rest of the family, my family, they were Irish alcoholics, and they would sit around making fun of him. You know, how he just fell off a peach truck. That was one of the phrases. And how naive he was, you know, and how ridiculous he was. Well, he's still alive, and they're dead. And (laughs) (laughs) Who's laughing now? Exactly. (laughs) The theme park... Part of it is a, a certain number of his films, Spielberg's films, are theme parks or uh, thrill rides. They're designed to mimic being on a roller coaster, and it's it's not surprising that they would then make rides at Universal City out of it. I thought when I saw that film that it had a little bit in terms of the character. And again, it, the characters were ish rather than anything real definite. But Sam Neill was five-ish. And Sam Neill is five-ish, and I think he's a five in real life. Mm -hmm. And his mentor was James Mason, who was also a five. And Jeff Goldblum is kind of an ironic nine, but he's got some range. But the Mm -hmm. other thing I thought was that was sort of central was Richard Attenborough's character. I thought that was pretty close. I believe he was a seven in real life. And that was pretty close to what... Mm -hmm the seven-ish theme stitched through the thing, which was, let's create a thrill ride. Let's create, you know, a wondrous adventure. You know, what could go wrong? And, you know, the film is about everything going wrong. And him kind of coming around, him being sort of flexible at the end and saying, you know, he he agreed with everybody else. Let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. So, So it's interesting, again, keep on with this theme of the thrill ride. So even when they're coming into the island on the helicopter, the helicopter gets bumpy, yeah. right? And the Sam Neill character is trying to put his seatbelt on. And the Jeff Goldblum character is kind of enjoying it, right? You, you know, so there's that. Right from that point, there's a thrill ride. And then when Hammond is showing them about the technology that they're doing, they're sitting in this little theater area, and the bar comes like a ride, right? I mean, it literally is a a ride 
you know, as they're learning about the technology. And so, you know, they move in these seats like you would on a, an amusement ride. And in order for them to get up to go explore, they actually have to force the protection bar off of them, mm-hmm. right? Like they would have there. So again, saw this in the theater, was mesmerized by it, was thrilled by it. And it did have to do with the excitement of it and the technology, right? I think for me, Jurassic Park was one of those moments similar to Avatar, right? Where, you know, I remember seeing Avatar in the theater with the 3D glasses and saying, oh my gosh, this is something new. This is something different. And it's funny because I thought watching Avatar, not to get distracted here, movies will never be the same. You know, my kids will never see movies the same way. Uh, But that kind of came and went, right? The 3D movie thing just sort of disappeared. But CGI certainly did not, right? For better or worse. Because for me, when I watched it again, okay, fun movie, interesting. I thought the, you know, be careful about science thing was a little bit ham-handed, you know, for my taste. But the characters weren't particularly developed that interesting. And I think just being jaded about CGI these days made it less enjoyable for me but i actually wrote in my notes that this is a thrill ride in search of a movie right and i felt the same way about john williams score on this one it was matching the the pace and theme of the movie but it was unsatisfying for me you know unlike the other scores and it made me think of a critic's comment i read about u2 song beautiful day back years ago from whatever album that was off. They said it's a crescendo in search of a song, right? And I felt that when I was listening to the soundtrack to Jurassic Park, it made me think of Disney World, which is mm-hmm. the same thing. The music in the background is all crescendo, right? And it's like, you're supposed to be having a good time here. Don't you understand this? You know, we only have a good time at, at Disney. So I, you know, I didn't enjoy Jurassic Park as much, you know, upon rewatching it as I certainly did. But I do think it's a big accomplishment in film. A couple of ways that Um, Spielberg doesn't trust his audience. One of them is his use of music. Because in some of his Mm -hmm. films, the music is there to tell you how to feel. And in a broader sense, you can see that in a lot of films. That is the function of some of the music. But it's unearned in some way. Also, you know, this film does have one of your rearview mirror scenes. And it's, yes. it's a big laugh, too, when they're being chased by the T-Rex. You see in the mirror, yeah. objects are closer than they appear. Right, which takes on a new meaning when it's a T-Rex. Yeah, it, trying it, to eat the you. Object, yes. Right? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Good. Yeah, so again, you know, great movie. For me, the, the least rewatchable of the four that we're talking about here. Okay, but you know, still highly recommended if you haven't seen it. All right. They really nailed the dinosaurs. I've seen that film recently and they're flawless. That was the big yeah. startling thing. It, it really was. And, and I was watching some clips because they were originally thinking of stop motion mm-hmm. to do those dinosaur scenes. And I saw some of the footage that they did and it would not have worked. I mean, just no way. So to your point, TJ, they really did take a gamble on the technology and i agree i mean even watching it now because a lot of times when you go back and you see technology that was 
awe-inspiring at the time. You know, Star Wars, for example, right? I remember seeing Star Wars in the theater and thinking, oh, my gosh, look at this. You know, and you watch it now, and it's like, geez, man, some kids could do this on their iPhones, you know, these days, right? But I didn't feel that way with Jurassic Park. It really did feel still impressive mm -hmm. uh, with the technology. Yeah. Right. Any other thoughts about Jurassic Park? Yeah, just to build on something, a couple of things you were saying, Richard Attenborough's character, Dr. John Hammond, being a seventh, the very first thing we see him do when we meet him in the movie is pop a bottle of champagne. <laughs> and he shows up at the archaeological dig in Montana. Nobody knows who he is. He helicopters in, goes into the trailer, digs through the fridge, finds his bottle of champagne. And they open the door. Who the hell are you? Pop! Here it is. And then yeah. reveals that he's their funder and pours champagne for everyone. And then kind of gets them, you know, sevens often have this infectious enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. So he talks them into coming to his private island, of course, promising he's going to fund their dig for another three years. And the big reveal that happens, you know, I mentioned there's so many shots of anticipation before we finally see the dinosaurs. That first scene of the dinosaurs, it's a pretty outrageous conceit that he hasn't thought to mention to these doctors, these paleontologists he's bringing to his island, that he has live dinosaurs there. And he just says, come to my island. I got some interesting things going on you'd be interested in. But when they get there, they seem to have no idea that there's going to be actual dinosaurs. And, of course, he loves seeing their minds blown because that's another seven thing. It's like I love sharing the joy like that. I love turning up the, you know, just ratcheting up the excitement. So there's a lot of that in it. Uh, you mentioned when the helicopter's dropping in. Hammond himself is saying, Yahoo! You know, as he's going, he's a 70 year old man and he loves this thrill ride that he's clearly done many, many times. There's a scene when they're doing the tour where an egg hatches and he gets in there and he's encouraging it. He's saying, Oh, good, good. Come on, then, little one. Come on. You know, he's giving it all this encouragement. And then later, when the lawyer is so impressed at what they have, saying, We could charge $2,000 a day, we could charge $10,000 a day. He says, you know, this park is not built to only cater to the super rich. Everyone should be able to enjoy these animals. Right. I think that's another seventh thing is this desire for accessibility. That I don't just want fun and freedom for myself or for a special crew. I want it for everyone, which also speaks to what a populist filmmaker Spielberg has always been. Yeah, they're naturally democratic, not in a political sense, but in yeah. a, Yeah. I'm, not, I'm just going to comment on that. One of the things I notice about Sevens, and particularly, you know, like I said, living with a bunch of them, Sevens, you almost never see ill will toward other people in Sevens, right? I mean, they genuinely, you know, they may not love everybody. They may not like everybody, you know, but I almost never see spite and hostility coming from Sevens, right? Which is one of the things for me that just makes them so appealing and you know and you know what one of the things i love about sevens i think it's because it's such a polar opposite for me but just to put an exclamation point on that thing you know it really is this idea of look let's just all have fun here and i've never known a seven to be elitist or snobby in the slightest just the reverse i have you know sevens who are performers i've always oh really okay joe campbell the, the sevens that i know of are Oh, interesting. Ah, can you say yeah. more about that? He just avowed it. He said, you know, why why deny it? He wasn't saying, I'm better, but he was saying there is an elite and implied he was among them. There's a, a better than, worse than sort of quality pattern within seven hmm. where you're comparing yourself to somebody else and you're better than them, but you're worse than them. And uh, sometimes that'll bring out spite too. 
Sorry, I interrupted TJ. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt TJ here for a minute too. I tend to see that in you know what I would call the navigating uh, subtype of the seven, right? It's more of this consciousness of mm-hmm. you know position. Okay, where am I? Where are you? Where are people on the hierarchy? Right. So there's an awareness of it, and sometimes it can bring out. I think you know if if the person is under stress and feeling that they're not getting their share that that can come out. But but I do think, again, in general, that more so than a lot of types, there tends to be a lack of ill will yeah. from sevens in my experience. So, so go ahead, TJ. We've both interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The sevens that I know, again, limited sample size, are very much, you know, an every person and never talk down to anyone. You know, a lot of performers I know who are sevens make a point of meeting the crew and, you know, any backstage person and speaking to them as equals. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories of Robin Williams entertaining the crew or the extras on sets of movies or of crashing local comedy clubs when he's filming in a place. And he filmed a number of movies in Vancouver. So I know people who who were part of an improv troupe that he just joined spontaneously. And they said he was actually a really good ensemble player, Mm -hmm. you know, which you wouldn't expect necessarily because he's a massive star and he's hilarious and about as successful as a comedian as there's ever been. But he treated everybody as an equal. He had mm-hmm. time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, another last thought about uh, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park is what you mentioned about, you know, the omnipresence of CGI. In some ways, the movie is almost an analogy for that of this Dr. Frankenstein of like, be careful with this thing that you've brought into existence because now you can't control it. And it's curious to imagine what if this movie hadn't been made or what if it had been made and it was really bad, would CGI not have become the go-to piece of filming technology that it is. And I wonder how Spielberg feels about that. Because there's a lot of arguments to be made for practical effects, which is what he was using in Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, what you know, George Lucas was using in the original Star Wars movies, which just look and feel a lot more real mm-hmm. than endless digital landscapes yeah. and digital effects, which at some level the eye often, not always, but often can read as, eh, I don't quite buy that. And it can make a movie look like a video game and yeah. can prevent you from getting emotionally involved right interesting point and again you know going back to raiders and one of the things i said i really liked about it is that the stunt work you could tell that you know these are people really taking some risks and doing things that are exciting and this looks like real people doing it and i understand the downside to this right and the same thing can be said about jaws changing the nature of hollywood right it now went from you know if you look at the movies that were made in the early 70s Okay, a lot different. You don't see those movies being made today, right? We live in the era that Jaws has spawned, right? Where there just aren't the character-driven movies that there used to be, or not nearly as many of them. Their movies are much safer, much more tentpole, right? It's got to be a big movie. We're only going to invest in certain ones and so forth. So, you know, there's a downside to great success. I don't want to hold it against Spielberg, but, uh, you know, there are ramifications to that too. I feel the same way about fights in movies, right? I mean, I used to be a huge connoisseur of uh, martial arts movies, and but since now every, you know, martial or, you know, every fighter in a movie is some kind of superhero, you know, it's very, very different from a Bruce Lee or a Chuck Norris, you know, or a Steven Seagal fight scene, you know, it's just not interesting because it's so over the top crazy, you know, and, and fake. So it has taken some of the nuance and pleasure out of watching movies as far as I'm concerned. It's a kind of blockbuster syndrome too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 
you know, and Spielberg has gone back and, you know, tried to dispel that notion of himself, right? Famously, the color purple was an example of that, saying, hey, I'm not just this guy. I can do this as well. But there aren't that many Steven Spielbergs, right? So we get more of the blockbuster than this. And the color purple purple wasn't a particular success, nor Empire of the Sun, or, you know, like Schindler's List was, and that's the exception. And another pattern that I noticed in, in his filmography is he made Schindler's List, or they came out, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park came out the same year. And he was working on the special effects yeah. on the set of Schindler's List. And if you look at the release of a lot of his movies, that pairing often happens. You know, The Lost World, the second Jurassic Park, same year as Amistad. Or Munich came out the same year as War of the Worlds. Or Always came out the same year as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Or The Post, you know, he made that while he was working on the special effects or waiting for the special effects on Ready Player One. It's almost like this, I have to inoculate myself against this serious movie that I'm making by making a fun, popular movie, just so that nobody thinks that I'm all that. And that's something I see with Sevens a lot in the world of performing. You know, I I know a few where it's like, I have to earn the right to say something serious by being fun and entertaining. And, you know, it's probably not a coincidence. It took him 20 years as uh, into his career before he made Schindler's List, before he dared. Plus, I've got to keep busy and and distracted and, you know, not get bored by spending, you know, all the time working on something that is the same. Right. And I also read that he wanted to film Schindler's List prior to Jurassic Park. The studios would only fund Schindler's List if he agreed to do Jurassic Park first. And so he did end up doing the post-production on Jurassic Park at the same time he was doing the pre-production on Schindler's List. So, boy, oh boy, how is that about holding two different you know, thoughts and or mindsets in, in your head at the same time? Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Uh, Okay, so our final movie here, a different kind of movie. You know, still not a Schindler's List sort of movie, for sure, but, you know, with a bit more of a serious theme or a bit more of a grown-up theme. And that is the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, who, even though Tom Hanks was a huge movie star at the time, plays kind of a supporting role. And famously, Tom Hanks said to Spielberg, who didn't think he would want the role, said a good role is a good role. I'll do it. I don't care. TJ, tell us about Catch Me If You Can, please. Yeah, Catch Me If You Can came out in 2002. It's inspired, you know, they say this quite clearly on the opening screen, inspired by, not even based by, or the true story, but inspired by the story of Frank Abagnale Jr., who was a famous faker. He faked his way into being an airline pilot, doctor, a lawyer, 
and forged millions of dollars in checks before turning 19, or so he said in his autobiography of the same title, which came out in the early 80s. So the movie opens with him being caught. He's in a French prison, and his pursuer, played by Tom Hanks, Agent Carl Hanratty of the FBI, gets him out of French prison to bring him back to the United States. And then we see a clip of him on a game show called To Tell the Truth, where three different people purport to be the same person, and they give the backstory and just set up the premise of who this guy is and what he did. And then we go back in time and go through the cat and mouse chase of Frank from all his different fake exploits and Carl Hanratty's attempts to catch him, including many, many near misses. And a running theme through it is Frank's desire to please his father, played by Christopher Walken, and his perpetual heartbreak at his parents' divorce. And something that is very pertinent to Steven Spielberg himself are the different ways that the screenplay deviated, which he didn't write, but he had a strong hand in directing, but the ways the screenplay deviated from Frank Abagnale's actual book. So one of the details in that was that when he left home, that was the last he ever saw of his father. Didn't see him again, didn't write to him, didn't talk to him on the phone, nothing. Whereas he repeatedly reaches out to him in the movie. He visits him, he has dinner with him, he tries to get him and his mother back together. His mother is remarried to his father's best friend, which didn't happen in real life. Happened in real life to Steven Spielberg, but in real life, Frank Abagnale's mother never remarried, much less had a child. So it was interesting to see another example of Spielberg kind of sublimating his own personal issues onto not even a fictional character, but a real character. And then it just came out a year ago that basically everything in Frank Abagnale's story is not true. That his claims do not hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. But hey, it makes a great story. Yeah. And the thing with the, the, the father, you're, you, I read the same thing, TJ, about the relationship there. His father was actually his first victim. He stole his credit cards and used those and ran him up huge credit card debts before fleeing and then never seeing him again. So, the, you know, he wasn't trying to please his father the way that the character was. So, um, Tom, thoughts about Catch Me If You Can? Well, type um, when I saw it, I did some reading about Frank and watched, there were some interviews also. And I, I went into it wondering if he was like a sociopathic three, but he wasn't. And it was much more like a seven. That's what he seemed like. And he seemed like a fabulist. He seemed like a, a sexual subtype. Again, somebody kind of uh, capable of faking a whole book about his exploits but also kind of entranced by his own stories, you know, kind of hypnotized in a narcissistic sort of way. And Leonardo DiCaprio is a seven, in my estimation. So that was what I call any a type casting. And I thought the film was about, you know, Tom Hanks was playing a sort of one-ish character, but not an explicit one. And that contrast between seven and one I've seen maybe 200 films that play with that because it's very photogenic and they're very opposite of each other. But it's sort of like the seven is unrestrained and the one is trying to clamp down. That was true in almost every Robin Williams movie. The, you know, there was some of that in there as well. And Tom Hanks also playing a, a sort of representative of tradition and the law and social forces of order is a, a role he's played a few times. I think 
I originally thought he was a seven, but I think he's a nine, actually. I know someone who knew him, and there's a few other things, too, but more of a seven-ish nine rather than a nine-ish seven. But so playing the moral clamp down and then, you know, the fabulous goes off. And that's a polarity within a lot of sevens. Not every seven. A lot of sevens are trying to avoid pain, but others are trying to avoid boredom. Others are trying to avoid limitations and rules and restrictions and limitations. And yet, you know, the paradox within seven is that they're sensitive to limitations and being bored when they feel bored, they do what's called in hypnosis time distortion. The time distortion is this feels like it's going to last forever. And so I've got to plan my next trip to Morocco or something in order to get away from the forever feeling of it. It's an illusion. It's a function of the unconscious, but that's what it is. And then, you know, some of them will be avoiding judgment. They'll be maybe attracted to it, but repelled by it at the same time. Uh, it's in lots of movies, lots of movies. Yeah. It's interesting because for me, as I was watching this movie again, I'm thinking, you know, this guy's kind of a dick, but, uh, you know, he's not a good person, right? I mean, what he's doing is, you know, I mean, besides being illegal, you know, he's hurting people and damaging people and, you know, doing some things that are just really irresponsible, right? You know, the whole working, posing as a doctor, you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, the havoc he is wreaking. And it's a weird sort of thing, but he comes across almost as likable, right? I mean, you kind of have some sympathy for him, and it's partly because of the way that the story is told, and partly because one of the things I see in Sevens is that a lot of them, you know, when they're less healthy, have this sense that they can charm their way out of stuff. So they're just going to go and do what they want to do, because why shouldn't I, right? There's fun over there. Why shouldn't I go have it? And I'll just kind of figure my way out of it, right? And uh, charm my way out of it. So again, I, I don't want to cast that on, you know, every seven, because it's not. It's a real low level sort of behavior. But I did have that. Because when I was watching the movie, I'm thinking, like you were saying, Tom, is this a three... Is it a seven, you know, leaning toward a seven? Is it, is it a three played by a seven or whatever? But I think I would agree with you. It was more seven-ish than three-ish, um, as the character was told. The degree to which a seven is impelled to go find the fun, as you put it, is the degree to which there's some part of them that feels yeah. trapped or sensitive to being trapped. And they, they trap themselves, in, in essence, by the time they're adults. Mm-hmm. But they could have grown up in an environment where people were bored and boring or there were limited options. There was, uh, they had to go to Catholic school and they were victims of judgmental ones. You know, there'll be uh, different stories from different people. But I always see it in terms of polarities that way. Right. I thought the father, the Christopher Walken character, not one of his you know, more important roles, mm-hmm. but felt a bit seven-ish to me, right? In, in some ways, you know, this idea of being the mouse that, you know, stirs up the cream, you know, sort of thing. And always, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'll bounce back. This will be good. This will be good. So that felt, you know, kind of a seven-ish theme there too. Tom, you might have an opinion on this. I don't have a thought, but it intrigued me watching I the think movie. Christopher seven. Walken. Seven? Yeah. Yeah. 
Christopher Walken is one of my all-time favorites. I mean, again, this wasn't one of his more significant roles, but I, you know, I, I would listen to Christopher Walken read the phone book because I just think he's just so interesting. And you know, whenever I see interviews with him, he's just such a light spirit, and you know, again, positive, fun. You know, without being goofy and Robin Williams is just, you know, this light kind of, you know, what's there to be sad about? You know, life is good. Uh, you know, a dancer, you know, singer, all that sort of stuff. So you could you could probably find a recording of a standard comedian reading the phone book as Christopher Walken. He's one of the most. Yeah. Most frequent subjects <laughs> of comedy impersonations. And the stuff that he did in this movie, as I was watching it, I was like, yep, that sounds like somebody imitating Christopher Walken. It's like doing his famous cadence with no self-consciousness whatsoever. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a film he was in called The Comfort of Strangers. Oh, I love that. My father was a very large man. Yeah, that, where the... Wasn't that the famous line? It was the young couple in uh, Venice, I think it was, or... Yeah. Natasha Richardson. Yeah, it was Venice, Rupert Everett, and Liam Neeson. So, yeah. 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 yeah go ahead. And... I'm not easily frightened at movies, but he scared the hell out of me in that film. And he later said that he scared the hell out of himself. Yeah, that that was a creepy, intimidating performance in a creepy and intimidating movie. Absolutely. Did you ever see that one, TJ? No, no, I've read the book. Yet. But, yeah. oh, okay, yeah. Check it out. It was one of his more compelling roles. I, I always, for me, you know, there's so many iconic roles of Christopher Walken, but I just love uh, the one with Christian Slater, the Tarantino written movie with Christian Slater. Oh, and, true Romance. Uh, true Romance, thank you. I just think he's, you know, off the charts, wonderful in True Romance. But uh. Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. All right, great. So other thoughts on Catch Me If You Can. TJ? Yeah, just to build on what you were both saying before about him likely being more of a seven than a three. One of the things about the way he's presented in the movie is that every single new role that he takes just kind of drops into his lap. There's no planning. There's no analysis of like, what's going to work? What am I good at? And there's a scene when he's faking being a doctor where he vomits at the sight of blood. So clearly he hasn't thought this through, but these things just keep dropping into his lap. So he stumbles into, you know, faking being the teacher in a French class when he moves to a new high school and he's being bullied. He stumbles into how to forge bigger checks when the desk guy tells him that they, they cash payroll checks up to $300. He stumbles into the fact that airlines cash checks at the airport for their employees or that there's such a thing as a deadhead where he can get a free ride to the next city. So 
all of those things, or you know, escaping being caught as a doctor just by impulsively proposing marriage to one of the nurses and then going to visit her family in, in Louisiana, and then she's deciding, I'll be a lawyer now. Like, it's not because he feels the net closing in around him. It's just, this is this new thing. It's just put in front of him. He says, ah, okay, I'll go with that. And he does, and he makes a go of it and charms his way through it by watching TV shows, apparently, which gets to the other big point, something I've mentioned before, is why let truth get in the way of a good story? When you analyze this story with any critical sense, it just doesn't hold up. There's so many things like that, of like passing the bar exam with two weeks study, or being a doctor in any functional way when you can't even stand the sight of blood, or there's a scene when the law is closing in on him at the Miami airport, and he then recruits a bunch of university students to be stewardesses and then flies out with them and uses them as a smokescreen so that the agents don't see him. Well, why not fly out of literally anywhere else? And, you know, he's taking them to Europe ostensibly. Well, how do you do that without passports? Like, and then eventually when he's arrested in France, the French police show up with guns. French police don't carry guns. So there's many different things like that in the movie that don't hold up, but again, Spielberg is just so thrilling of a director that you probably don't ask these questions until much later, or if you're actively studying the film in order to talk about it in the podcast. It was a story of opportunism. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely. No forethought, no planning, just this going to happen. And, and back to your point, Tom, about the uh, sexual or you know, what I would call the transmitting seven, I completely oh, yeah. agree with you about this idea of distractibility, right? So the, the other sevens aren't as distractible, right? You know, I mean, all sevens, all of us are to some extent. But, but what I find is that with the social or navigating a seven, there's more of a concern that I might get bored at some point, which is different. With the transmitting seven? No, no. With the with the navigating seven, there's this idea that you know I have to have things lined up for the future. I have to have options, right? So I think of my son who's a navigating seven. I've got these friends that I skateboard with, and these friends that I play basketball, and these friends that I do this with, and these friends that I do that one. So if I start to get bored with this, I have a backup plan. Okay. That's, you know, kind of their modus operandi. Whereas with the transmitting or sexual seven, I can be deeply engaged in something and then, oh, wow, what was that bright, shiny object? Right. You know, and, you know, get that kind of distractibility. So it's a different sort of energy uh, among the different subtypes. With the sexual subtype, they're protecting themselves with a veil of fantasy and story. Mm -hmm. And that, takes the edge off of bruising early circumstances or uh, limitations that they understand are characteristic of the world around them. The last one you were talking about, navigating? No. What's the other one? Yeah, or what others would call social. You know, I call it navigating. So the stuff you just said about that, to me, would be about the self-preservation seven. Hmm. Uh, Well... It's an area of disagreement with us that we can explore sometime. But for me, with the preserving seven, there is this element of I have a kind of tight support network, right? I have a close group of friends who are there, but 
it's more of a focus on the environment and the things in it, right? I find comfort in the nest and the necessities of the home and that sort of thing. So, but we can get into the nuances of the subtypes of the seven at another time, but the realm of uh, chosen family also. Yes. Yes. I would agree with you. Absolutely. Something there in preserving seven, this idea of, you know, my family's. And it's, it seems social, but because it's people. But you're, you're you're palisading yourself off against the harshness of reality exactly. by the people that you exactly. check in with and stay stay on a circuit with. Right. All right. Good. Okay. So four movies from Steven Spielberg, all of them, you know, in in some way capturing a sevenish theme. And I think that you can watch almost any Steven Spielberg movie. And there are some exceptions. I don't see a whole lot of sevenish energy in Munich or Schindler's List or, you know, a few of the others. But, you know, a lot of these themes that illustrate what it's like to be a seven or some of the themes of human nature that we tend to associate with sevens, just pop up all over Steven Spielberg's work, right? Off the top of your heads, guys, any other movies you would think of that capture that? Just as kind of honorable mention. Schindler's List, actually. Uh, Yeah? Yeah, because of... Ah, with Schindler himself? The framing device of it. Spielberg, except for Munich, which is a tough movie, I think, and a good one. Yeah. He goes for positive counterexamples. Amistad is like mm. that. It's the one time white mm-hmm. people stood up and on behalf of slaves. Schindler's List, mm. this guy is the exception. And the movie Always, that one's about a ghost, and it basically says you're not going to die. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think this kind of <laughs> runs through it. Even, even Saving Private yeah. Ryan. The framing device within that is they're going to go find Private Ryan because he's the last brother of a family in Iowa. And it's got to do with a a counterexample to what is then shown, which is, I thought it was almost an anti-war movie. Oh, absolutely. A lot of it was brutal. But there's a warm fuzzy at the end and the beginning. When Saving Private Ryan came out, I took my younger brother, who was 20 years younger than me, and a couple of his friends to see it. And walking out of it, one of them said, war is terrible. I hope we never have to go to another war, right? So I agree with you. It was kind of an anti-war movie. And I haven't seen Schindler's List since seeing it in the theaters. I I have to say, it's not a movie that I've been able to bring myself to rewatch. As great a movie as it was, I just... It's about the Holocaust, you know. I mean, I just find Holocaust movies to be difficult to watch a second time. Call me a, call me a baby. I don't know. Uh, if I could just add one thing that in Saving Private Ryan, in Saving Private Ryan, the the whole purpose of the mission is to avoid the mother's grief, basically. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Go ahead, TJ. You were going to say something. Yeah, I also haven't seen Schindler's List since it was in the theaters, but something that came up in some interviews is it's possible Schindler was a seven in that he was an unlikely person to do what he did. And that's Mm -hmm. the whole point of the movie is that he was a bon vivant and a not particularly good businessman, but he liked drinking and he liked womanizing. Mm -hmm. And even he himself didn't realize Mm -hmm. that he had this capacity for courage and greatness. And that after the war, he also failed as a businessman. 
He just wasn't that good at it. So that's a theme you see a lot in Spielberg movies is that the ordinary person, the completely ordinary person is the person who has greatness in them, which I think has a lot to do with Spielberg himself. You know, in any interview with him, he's probably wearing a baseball cap and a checkered shirt. Like he just looks like a normal guy. His movies are unselfconsciously full of product placement and TVs being on and food all over the place. And he just doesn't seem to have any aversion at all to the messiness of regular life. And something Richard Dreyfuss told me is that Spielberg loves suburbia and always has. And it's interesting to think of this guy with kind of a Mozart level talent being in the body of yes. just a completely ordinary average guy. And in some ways, E.T. is almost an analogy for that. He described E.T. as wanting to make a movie about a 10-year-old boy who develops a friendship with a 900-year-old being. And in some ways, Spielberg is that. He's this eternal youth. There's a 10-year-old boy in him. And then there's this wisdom of somebody far beyond his years that kind of gives him this genius with the, the Peter camera. Peter Pan, yes. Another movie is Hook, also. Peter Pan, which he talked about making for years. Peter Pan, that's type. A couple other yeah. movies I want to mention. One is Sugarland Express, which is his first feature film starring Goldie Hawn, a famous seven. And the plot of that movie is that she gets out of prison, breaks her husband out of prison so they can go retrieve their, their baby that's been taken away from her. But they don't really seem to have any kind of a plan. She hasn't thought things through. They're just shucking and jiving. And just like you know, the character in Catch Me If You Can, you have to ask at some point, is like, how did you think this was going to turn out? Like, you didn't think you'd get caught? But it's fun and it's exciting. And the whole movie is basically a chase because the police are pursuing them right from the beginning. So it's a feature-length chase, as is The Adventures of Tintin, animated movie. It's just one cartoonish chase after another. And I rewatched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, neither of which I'd seen in years. I'd, I'd seen them both in the theater when they came out and loved them, but as I was watching them now, especially like right after watching Raiders, you can see it's like, oh, he's doing kind of a seven thing, which is this thing was fun. Let's do it again. Let's have more of it. But it's wearing thin, and all the ingredients yes. are there. It should be satisfying, but it isn't, and it, you can't really put your finger on why. Right. They're not great films, but they're very interesting to watch to show that trajectory of the way a seven yes. operates. And I haven't even seen the Jurassic Park sequels, but I understand it's the same thing with those. Yeah. It's almost as if I'm kind of boring myself with this, right? I'm doing it for whatever reason, but I'm losing interest and not putting my all into it. So, Well, the most recent Indiana Jones film was full of CGI, computer-generated graphics. And you could really tell the difference between what we were talking about earlier yes. with Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. And it got bigger and more elaborate. It made a lot of money, but it was it was stupid. And, you know, just just really didn't work, <laughs> I thought. Just because he survives a, a, an atomic bomb explosion in a refrigerator? I mean, what, yeah, you think that's well, stupid? That's, that's just common sense. That's that's what you do. Yeah. Duck and cover. <laughs> All right. Very good. Quick Goldie Hawn story since you brought her up. I was actually, I, years ago, I went to see a talk by the Dalai Lama 
at American University in uh, Washington. It was a you know an auditorium about five thousand people or so, and you know the Tibet thing was very big. This was the late seventies, you know, so the Richard Gears and the Goldie Hawns and the uh, Adam Yalk for from Beastie Boys were there, and so it was a day long talk by the Dalai Lama and. Goldie Hawn with her, was there with her daughter, Kate Hudson, who was not famous yet at the time. But both of them tall, which surprised me. I stood within five feet of them, and they're both relatively tall. Uh, and uh, the daughter, Kate Hudson, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life, you know, my wife aside. But, but there was a lunch break in the middle of the day, and there was kind of this special area for the celebrities, okay? And Goldie Hawn brought her own masseuse to the talk by the Dalai Lama and had a massage table set up. And because I was with, you know, a guy that was handicapped, I had kind of special seating. And so we could see Goldie Hawn getting a massage in the middle of a talk by the Dalai Lama. So if that's not seven-ish, I don't know what it is, right? (laughs) Well, in in all fairness, he's not that relaxing to listen to. (laughs) Well, I had a fun time listening to him. It was, it was funny because you could tell him and his interpreter had their, their gig worked out. The Dalai Lama would talk in Tibetan for like 10 minutes, you know, and then the interpreter would talk for half an hour straight, you know, just so they had mm-hmm. their act down. But it was an interesting event. Anyway, so this has been our episode on Enneagram Type 7 and Steven Spielberg. So, Tom, we want to thank you for joining us. This has been a good conversation. I always enjoy having you on the podcast, Tom. You bring a great depth of uh, knowledge. Uh, Tom, tell us where people can find out more about you and your work. My website's called The Change Works, all one word, dot com. And that's, that's the best place to go. And then uh, I'm on Facebook also. And periodically pretty active, and then other times not at all. Check out Tom's work if you're not familiar, but I can't imagine you're not if you're listening to this podcast. But Tom is one of the more significant Enneagram teachers in the world. You know, I tend to be fairly critical in my consumption of Enneagram content. Tom is somebody worth listening to, so uh, check him out online and enjoy his, his material. All right. So thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. All right. So this is Mario Sakura saying goodbye to everybody, bringing this episode to a close, and we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time. Welcome to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. I'm TJ Daw, and this season my co-host Mario Sikora and I will be exploring the Enneagram through the lens of specific directors whose work demonstrates themes related to the nine Enneagram types and three instinctual biases. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. In the meantime, make some popcorn, sit back, and enjoy the show.
So next movie, Jurassic Park, another huge, huge hit. And I was uh, watching something about the licensing of Jurassic Park paraphernalia after the movie and the money that was generated from T-shirts and video games and dinosaur toys and lunch boxes and all these other sort of things was just astronomical. The movie itself was pretty big budget for Spielberg and for the time was $63 million, but it made over a billion dollars in the box office. It was a huge, huge hit. Let's see. So Jurassic Park, I'll give a a quick overview of the story, again, starring Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough. But quite frankly, the actors are irrelevant in this movie, right? You could have taken anybody and put them into those roles, I think. Some interesting casting what-ifs. Harrison Ford was considered for the role, uh, eventually played by Sam Neill, the, the main scientist, the paleontologist. And Sean Connery was considered for the Richard Attenborough film. So it would have been Harrison Ford and Sean Connery who appear in Indiana Jones 3 as father and son. Interesting idea. A couple of interesting choices for all of them. But the actors are besides the point here. I think for me, the only actor that left any kind of an imprint was actually Jeff Goldblum in this movie. I thought he was the only kind of intriguing character from my point of view. But anyway, so Jurassic Park is based on a Michael Crichton novel movie was being filmed before the novel was even finished spielberg and Crichton were working together on er talking about the you know, the wide range of spielberg's activities a really really huge television show from i guess early 1990s uh, it was a big thing launching the career of george clooney amongst others but you know spielberg said to Crichton, what are you working on he started telling about the book and spielberg immediately called the movie studio Universal next day and said, you need to buy this. So they paid Michael Crichton $3 million rights to the book before it was even finished. So in the book, in I'm sorry, in the movie, industrialist John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, has created a theme park of cloned dinosaurs, Jurassic Park, on an island off the Costa Rica coast, actually filmed in Hawaii. Uh, after a dinosaur Handler is killed by a velociraptor. The park's investors, represented by a lawyer, Donald Gennaro, demand that experts visit the park and certify its safety. One of the people chosen is a mathematician and chaos theorist, played by Jeff Goldblum. And the others are a paleontologist, Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and a paleobotanist, Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern. They quickly find themselves in awe of what Hammond has created when they you know, first see the big dinosaurs. And shortly after arriving, they're joined by Hammond's grandchildren, who are uh, Lex and Tim, a boy and a girl of 11 or 12 or so. But soon things start to go bad. Uh, they go bad because an evil computer guy played by the delightful Wayne Knight, who was Newman in Seinfeld, has decided that he is not making enough money and he wants to earn money from a competitor by stealing uh, some fertilized dinosaur embryos and giving them to a competitor. In order to do this, as a hurricane or tropical storm is bearing in on the island, he decides that he needs to shut off all the security measures that are keeping the dinosaurs in check and caged off so that he can get in, steal the dinosaur egg and take off. Well, of course, this leads to crazy things happening when you 
you know, do away with the security that's keeping a T-Rex and Velociraptors in a secluded part of the park, you're going to get trouble. And so they start going after our heroes. Some of the secondary characters get eaten. The lawyer comes upon a, uh, a rather grisly demise sitting on a toilet and being eaten by a Tyrannosaurus Rex. You know, a few of the others get killed in interesting ways. It all leads to a climax in the visitor's center where our heroes are saved kind of inadvertently by a Tyrannosaurus Rex who all of a sudden appears in the corner of the room uh, without anybody noticing, <laughs> uh, apparently, <laughs> and, and eats the uh, velociraptors who are trying to kill the scientists and the kids. And uh, so our heroes escape again to rousing John Williams' score in the movie. So let's see what else here. Again, big, big movie. The theme of it is when man plays God, bad things happen. Okay. Uh, one of the other themes is life finds a way. Okay, which you know is kind of one of the observations about nature and that gets referred to over and over again. They start making the dinosaurs all female because they don't want them breeding. They want to control the breeding. And the point that the Jeff Goldblum character points out is that not life finds a way. And if you have all females, they're going to find a different way to breed, which they do do and leads to some of their trouble. Okay. Thoughts on Jurassic Park, guys? TJ. Yeah, it doesn't have too much of a story it's basically just a thrill ride <laughs> and it's also the basis for the jurassic park ride at universal theme park in orlando which steven spielberg had a hand in helping design so it's not as satisfying as a movie altogether in terms of character development in terms of plot but it is a thrill ride and it really does work and yet again like i can't imagine anybody better to film a t-rex chase or a scene where a T-Rex is trying to eat two kids in a car. And one of the details, he makes us wait a long time to see that T-Rex. And I think that's something that he does a lot in his movies, is there's a lot of anticipation of like, let's, let's hold off. Let's make it seem like I'm going to show you the dinosaurs so you can just see some rustling bushes. Then, oh, you don't quite see it. So same with Jaws. It takes a long time to actually right. see the shark. And one of the motifs that you see in a lot of Spielberg movies is shots of the characters looking at something with awe and wonder, and we, the audience, don't know what they're looking at yet. We just see their astonishment. That's, you know, looking at a spaceship in Close Encounters. That's, you know, looking at the Ark. Look, all of these things that we can't see. There's a lot of that in this. And it's huge fun. Like, it's great to watch on as big a screen as possible because, as you said, the stars are the dinosaurs. And something that's easy to forget now because it's so ubiquitous the technology that they used for this, CGI, was brand new. This was the yeah. first movie using this kind of technology, and it was a big risk. And it paid off yes. in a really big way. I mean, it's used ubiquitously now. But at the time, huge risk. It could have looked terrible. So to make the whole movie hinge on this new technology, I think, fits in with another thing that's common with Sevens that I mentioned earlier. They're often early adopters of new technology. So he wasn't afraid to stake his career as a fantasy filmmaker on a piece of technology no, he'd never used and nobody had ever used. And similarly, something I read about him in some of his interviews is he had one of the first car phones there ever was. Mm -hmm. And he and a friend would get a kick out of like calling a girl and asking her on a date. And once they'd set it up, they'd reveal that they were in their car right outside her house. Right. Or he and George Lucas communicated by modem in 1982. You know, Lucas was in Northern mm -hmm. California. He was in Southern California. And then he loved video games. And I once saw a guy from Industrial Light and Magic 
speak at a film festival about how when Spielberg would come to ILM to supervise, you know, know, how's it coming with the special effects for whatever movie they were working on, they could easily distract him by just putting a video game controller in his hand (laughs) and he would just be a kid in heaven. Anything like that is like, oh, good, let me get in there. Let me figure out how it works. Let me play with it. Let me have fun with it. Let me figure out a way to make everybody have fun with it. And this might be the best example of that out of all of his work. The distractibility that you just referenced, that goes with the sexual subtype as well in Seven. I had an uncle who, back in the 1950s, he went into a health food store and was convinced to buy a bunch of vitamins. And he was a sexual seven. He was aware of trends, but he was also hyper-suggestible. And he was talked into buying $60 worth of vitamins. The rest of the family, my family, they were Irish alcoholics. And they would sit around making fun of him. You know, how he just fell off a peach truck. That was one of the phrases. And how naive he was, you know, and how ridiculous he was. Well... He's still alive, and they're dead. And <laughs> <laughs> who's laughing now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the theme part part of it is a, a certain number of his films, Spielberg's films, are theme parks or uh, thrill rides. They're designed to mimic being on a roller coaster, and it's it's not surprising that they would then make rides at Universal City out of it. I thought when I saw that film that it had a little bit in terms of the character. And again, it, the characters were ish rather than anything real definite. But Sam Neill was five-ish. And Sam Neill is five-ish. And I think he's a five in real life. And his mentor was James Mason, who was also a five. Oh. And Jeff Goldblum is kind of an ironic nine, but he's got some range. But the other thing I thought was that was sort of central was Richard Attenborough's character. I thought that was pretty close. I believe he was a seven in real life. And that was pretty close to what the seven-ish theme stitched through the thing, which was, let's create a thrill ride. Let's create, you know, a wondrous adventure. You know, what could go wrong? And, you know, the film is about everything going wrong. And him kind of coming right. around, him being sort of flexible at the end and saying, you know, he he agreed with everybody else, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. So, so it's interesting, again, keep on with this theme of the thrill ride. So even when they're coming into the island on the helicopter, the helicopter gets bumpy, yeah. right? And the Sam Neill character is trying to put his seatbelt on. And the Jeff Goldblum character is kind of enjoying it, right? You, you know, so there's that. Right from that point, there's a thrill ride. And then when Hammond is showing them about the technology that they're doing, they're sitting in this little theater area, and the bar comes like a ride, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. literally is yeah. a, a ride you know, as they're learning about the technology. And so, you know, they move in these seats like you would on an amusement ride. And in order for them to get up to go explore, they actually have to force the protection bar off of them, Mm -hmm. right? Like they would have there. So again, saw this in the theater, was mesmerized by it, was thrilled by it. And it did have to do with the excitement of it and the technology, right? I think for me... Jurassic Park was one of those moments similar to Avatar, 
right? Where, you know, I remember seeing Avatar in the theater with the 3D glasses and saying, oh my gosh, this is something new. This is something different. And it's funny because I thought watching Avatar, not to get distracted here, movies will never be the same. You know, my kids will never see movies the same way. Uh, but that kind of came and went, right? The 3D movie thing just sort of disappeared. But CGI certainly did not, right? For better or worse. Because for me, when I watched it again, okay, fun movie, interesting. I thought the, you know, be careful about science thing was a little bit ham-handed, you know, for my taste. But the characters weren't particularly developed that interesting. And I think just being jaded about CGI these days made it less enjoyable for me but i actually wrote in my notes that this is a thrill ride in search of a movie right and i felt the same way about john williams score on this one it was matching the the pace and theme of the movie but it was unsatisfying for me you know unlike the other scores and it made me think of a critic's comment i read about u2 song beautiful day back years ago from whatever album that was off they said it's a crescendo in search of a song right and i felt that when i was listening to the soundtrack to jurassic park it made me think of disney world which is Mm -hmm. the same thing the music in the background is all crescendo right and it's like you're supposed to be having a good time here don't you understand this you know we only have a good time at at disney so i you know i didn't enjoy jurassic park as much you know upon rewatching it as i certainly did but i do think it's a big accomplishment in film a couple of ways that Um, spielberg doesn't trust his audience one of them is his use of music because it in some of his mm -hmm. films the music is there to tell you how to feel And in a broader sense, you can see that in a lot of films. That is the function of some of the music, but it's unearned in some way. Also, you know, this film does have one of your rear view mirror scenes. And it's it's a big laugh, too, when they're being chased by the T-Rex. You see in the mirror, objects are closer than they appear. Right, which takes on a new meaning when it's a T-Rex. Yeah, trying to eat you. Yes. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> good yeah so again you know great movie for me the the least rewatchable of the four that we're talking about here okay but you know still highly recommended if you haven't seen it all right they really nailed the dinosaurs i've seen that film recently and they're flawless that was the big yeah. startling thing it, it really was. And, and I was watching some clips because they were originally thinking of stop motion mm-hmm. to do those dinosaur scenes. And I saw some of the footage that they did and it would not have worked. I mean, just no way. So to your point, TJ, they really did take a gamble on the, the technology. And I agree. I mean, even watching it now, because a lot of times when you go back and you see technology that was all inspiring at the time, you know, Star Wars, for example, right? I remember seeing Star Wars in the theater and thinking, oh my gosh, look at this, you know, and you watch it now and it's like, geez, man, some kids could do this on their iPhones, you know, these days, right? But I didn't feel that way with Jurassic Park. It really did feel still impressive Mm -hmm. uh, with the technology. Any other thoughts about Jurassic Park? Yeah, just to build on something, a couple of things you were saying, Richard Attenborough's character, Dr. John Hammond, being a seventh the very first thing we see him do when we meet him in the movie is pop a bottle of champagne. Mm-hmm. And he shows up at the archaeological dig in Montana 
nobody knows who he is. He helicopters in, goes into the trailer, digs through the fridge, finds his bottle of champagne. And they open the door. Who the hell are you? Pop! Here it is. And then reveals that he's their funder and pours champagne for everyone. And then kind of gets them, you know, sevens often have this infectious enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. So he talks them into coming to his private island, of course, promising he's going to fund their dig for another three years. And the big reveal that happens, you know, I mentioned there's so many shots of anticipation before we finally see the dinosaurs. That first scene of the dinosaurs, it's a pretty outrageous conceit that he hasn't thought to mention to these doctors, these paleontologists he's bringing to his island, that he has live dinosaurs there. And he just says, come to my island. I got some interesting things going on you'd be interested in. But when they get there, they seem to have no idea that there's going to be actual dinosaurs. And, of course, he loves seeing their minds blown because that's another seven thing. It's like I love sharing the joy like that. I love turning up the, you know, just ratcheting up the excitement. So there's a lot of that in it. Uh, you mentioned when the helicopter's dropping in, Hammond himself is saying, Yahoo, you know, as he's going, he's a <laughs> seven-year-old man, and he loves this thrill ride that he's clearly done many, many times. There's a scene when they're doing the tour where an egg hatches, and he gets in there, and he's encouraging it. He's saying, oh, good, good, come on, then, little one, come on. You know, he's giving it all this encouragement. And then later, when the lawyer is so impressed at what they have, saying, we could charge $2,000 a day, we could charge $10,000 a day, he says, you know, this park is not built to only cater to the super rich. Everyone should be able to enjoy these animals. Right. I think that's another seventh thing, is this desire for accessibility. That I don't just want fun and freedom for myself or for a special crew. I want it for everyone, which also speaks to what a populist filmmaker Spielberg has always been. Yeah, they're naturally democratic, not in a political sense, but in yeah. a, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to comment on that. One of the things I notice about Sevens, and particularly, you know, like I said, living with a bunch of them, Sevens, you almost never see ill will toward other people in Sevens, right? I mean, they genuinely, you know, they may not love everybody, they may not like everybody, you know, but I almost never see spite and hostility coming from sevens right which is one of the things for me that just makes them so appealing and you know and you know what one of the things i love about sevens i think it's because it's such a polar opposite for me but just to put an exclamation point on that thing you know it really is this idea of look let's just all have fun here and i've never known a seven to be elitist or snobby in the slightest just the reverse. I have. You know, sevens who are performers, I've always... Oh, really? Okay. Joe Campbell. The, the sevens that I know of are... Oh, interesting. Ah. Can you say yeah. more about that? He just avowed it. He said, you know, why why deny it? He wasn't saying, I'm better, but he was saying there is an elite and implied he was among them. There's a, a better than, worse than sort of quality pattern within seven. Mm-hmm. where you're comparing yourself to somebody else and you're better than them, but you're worse than them. And uh, sometimes that'll bring out spite too. Sorry, I interrupted TJ. Yeah, I'm going to interrupt TJ here for a minute too. I tend to see that in you know what I would call the navigating uh, subtype of the seven, right? It's more of this consciousness of mm-hmm. you know position. Okay, where am I? Where are you? Where are people on the hierarchy? Right. So there's an awareness of it. And sometimes it can bring out, I think, you know, if if the person is under stress and feeling that they're not getting their share, that that can come out. But but I do think, again, in general, that more so than a lot of types, there tends to be a lack of ill will from sevens in my experience. 
So, so go ahead, TJ. We've both interrupted you. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. The sevens that I know, again, limited sample size, are very much, you know, an every person and never talk down to anyone. You know, a lot of performers I know who are sevens make a point of meeting the crew and, you know, any backstage person and speaking to them as equals. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stories of Robin Williams entertaining the crew or the extras on sets of movies yeah. or of crashing local comedy clubs when he's filming in a place. And he filmed a number of movies in Vancouver. So I know people who have, who were part of an improv troupe that he just joined spontaneously. And they said he was actually a really good ensemble player, mm-hmm. you know, which you wouldn't expect necessarily because he's a massive star and he's hilarious and he about as successful as a comedian as there's ever been. But he treated everybody as an equal. He had mm-hmm. time for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, another last thought about uh, mm-hmm. Jurassic Park is what you mentioned about, you know, the omnipresence of CGI. In some ways, the movie is almost an analogy for that of this Dr. Frankenstein of like, be careful with this thing that you've brought into existence because now you can't control it. And it's curious to imagine what if this movie hadn't been made or what if it had been made and it was really bad? Would CGI not have become the go-to piece of filming technology that it is? And I wonder how Spielberg feels about that. Because there's a lot of arguments to be made for practical effects, which is what he was using in Jaws and Raiders of the Lost Ark, what you know, George Lucas was using in the original Star Wars movies, which just look and feel a lot more real mm-hmm. than endless digital landscapes yeah. and digital effects, which at some level the eye often, not always, but often can read as, eh, I don't quite buy that. And it can make a movie look like a video game and yeah. can prevent you from getting emotionally involved. Right. Interesting point. And again, you know, going back to Raiders and one of the things I said I really liked about it is that the stunt work, you could tell that, you know, these are people really taking some risks and doing things that are exciting. And this looks like real people doing it. And I understand the downside to this. Right. And the same thing can be said about Jaws changing the nature of Hollywood. Right. It now went from, you know, if you look at the movies that were made in the early 70s, Okay, a lot different. You don't see those movies being made today, right? We live in the era that Jaws has spawned, right? Where there just aren't the character-driven movies that there used to be, or not nearly as many of them. Their movies are much safer, much more tentpole, right? It's got to be a big movie. We're only going to invest in certain ones and so forth. So, you know, there's a downside to great success. I don't want to hold it against Spielberg, but, uh, you know, there are ramifications to that too. I feel the same way about fights in movies, right? I mean, I used to be a huge connoisseur of uh, martial arts movies, and but since now every, you know, martial or, you know, every fighter in a movie is some kind of superhero, you know, it's very, very different from a Bruce Lee or a Chuck Norris, you know, or a Steven Seagal fight scene, you know, it's just not interesting because it's so over the top crazy, you know, and, and fake. So it has taken some of the nuance and pleasure out of watching movies as far as I'm It's a kind of blockbuster syndrome too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and Spielberg has gone back and, you know, tried to dispel that notion of himself, right? Famously, the color purple was an example of that saying, hey, I'm not just this guy. I can do this as well. But there aren't that many Steven Spielbergs, right? So we get more of the blockbuster than this. And the color purple purple wasn't a particular success. Right. Nor Empire of the Sun or, you know, like Schindler's List was. And that's the exception. And another pattern that I noticed in, in his filmography is he made Schindler's List, or they came out, Schindler's List and Jurassic Park came out the same year. 
And he was working on the special effects yeah. on the set of Schindler's List. And if you look at the release of a lot of his movies, that pairing often happens. You know, The Lost World, the second Jurassic Park, same year as Amistad. Or Munich came out the same year as War of the Worlds. Or Always came out the same year as Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Or The Post, you know, he made that while he was working on the special effects or waiting for the special effects on Ready Player One. It's almost like this, I have to inoculate myself against this serious movie that I'm making by making a fun, popular movie. Just so that nobody thinks that I'm all that. And that's something I see with Sevens a lot in the world of performing. You know, I, I know a few where it's like I have to earn the right to say something serious by being fun and entertaining. And, you know, it's probably not a coincidence. It took him 20 years as uh, into his career before he made Schindler's List, before he dared. Plus, I've got to keep busy yeah. and, yeah. and distracted right. and, you know, not get bored by spending, you know, all the time working on right. something that is the same. Right. And I also read that he wanted to film Schindler's List prior to Jurassic Park. The studios would only fund Schindler's List if he agreed to do Jurassic Park first. And so he did end up doing the post-production on Jurassic Park at the same time he was doing the pre-production on Schindler's List. So, boy, oh boy, how is that about holding two different you know, thoughts and or mindsets in, in your head at the same time? Are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. Uh, okay, so our final movie here, a different kind of movie. You know, still not a Schindler's List sort of movie for sure, but, you know, with a bit more of a serious theme or a bit more of a grown-up theme. And that is the movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio and Tom Hanks, who, even though Tom Hanks was a huge movie star at the time, plays kind of a supporting role. And famously, Tom Hanks said to Spielberg, who didn't think he would want the role, said a good role is a good role. I'll do it. I don't care. TJ, tell us about Catch Me If You Can, please. Yeah, Catch Me If You Can came out in 2002. It's inspired, you know, they say this quite clearly on the opening screen, inspired by, not even based by or the true story, but inspired by the story of yeah. Frank Abagnale Jr., who was a famous faker. He faked his way into being an airline pilot, doctor, a lawyer and forged millions of dollars in checks before turning 19, or so he said in his autobiography of the same title, which came out in the early 80s. So the movie opens with him being caught. He's in a French prison, and his pursuer, played by Tom Hanks, Agent Carl Hanratty of the FBI, gets him out of French prison to bring him back to the United States. And then we see a clip of him on a game show called To Tell the Truth, where three different people purport to be the same person, and they give the backstory and just set up the premise of who this guy is and 
what he did. And then we go back in time and go through the cat and mouse chase of Frank from all his different fake exploits and Carl Hanratty's attempts to catch him, including many, many near misses. And a running theme through it is Frank's desire to please his father, played by Christopher Walken, and his perpetual heartbreak at his parents' divorce. And something that is very pertinent to Steven Spielberg himself are the different ways that the screenplay deviated, which he didn't write, but he had a strong hand in directing, but the ways the screenplay deviated from Frank Abagnale's actual book. So one of the details in that was that when he left home, that was the last he ever saw of his father. Didn't see him again, didn't write to him, didn't talk to him on the phone, nothing. Whereas he repeatedly reaches out to him in the movie. He visits him, he has dinner with him, he tries to get him and his mother back together. His mother is remarried to his father's best friend, which didn't happen in real life. Happened in real life to Steven Spielberg, but in real life, Frank Abagnale's mother never remarried, much less had a child. So it was interesting to see another example of Spielberg kind of sublimating his own personal issues onto not even a fictional character, but a real character. And then it just came out a year ago that basically everything in Frank Abagnale's story is not true. That his claims do not hold up to any scrutiny whatsoever. But hey, it makes a great story. Yeah. And the thing with the, the, the father, you're, you, I read the same thing, TJ, about the relationship there. His father was actually his first victim. He stole his credit cards and used those and ran him up huge credit card debts before fleeing and then never seeing him again. So, you know, he wasn't trying to please his father the way that the character was. So, um, Tom, thoughts about Catch Me If You Can? Well, um, when I saw it, I did some reading about Frank and watched. There were some interviews also. And I, I went into it wondering if he was like a sociopathic three, but he wasn't. And it was much more like a seven. That's what he seemed like. And he seemed like a fabulist. He seemed like a, a sexual subtype. Again, somebody kind of uh, capable of faking a whole book about his exploits, but also kind of entranced by his own stories, you know, kind of hypnotized in a narcissistic sort of way. And Leonardo DiCaprio is a seven, in my estimation. So that was what I call any a type casting. And I thought the film was about, you know, Tom Hanks was playing a sort of one-ish character, but not an explicit one. And that contrast between seven and one, I've seen maybe 200 films that play with that because it's very photogenic and they're very opposite of each other. But it's sort of like the seven is unrestrained and the one is trying to clamp down. That was true in almost every Robin Williams movie. The, you know, there was some of that in there as well. And Tom Hanks also playing a, a sort of representative of tradition and the law and social forces of order is a, a role he's played a few times. I think I originally thought he was a seven, but I think he's a nine, actually. I know someone who knew him and there's a few other things too but more of a seven-ish nine rather than a nine-ish seven but so playing the moral clamp down and then uh, you know the fabulous goes off and that's a polarity within a lot of sevens not every seven a lot of sevens are trying to avoid pain but others are trying to avoid boredom 
Others are trying to avoid limitations and rules and restrictions and limitations. And yet, you know, the paradox within Seven is that they're sensitive to limitations and being bored. When they feel bored, they do what's called in hypnosis time distortion. The time distortion is this feels like it's going to last forever. And so I've got to plan my next trip to Morocco or something in order to get away from the forever feeling of it. It's an illusion. It's a function of the unconscious, but that's what it is. And then, you know, some of them will be avoiding judgment. They'll be maybe attracted to it, but repelled by it at the same time. Uh, It's in lots of movies. Lots of movies. Yeah. It's interesting because for me, as I was watching this movie again, I'm thinking, you know, this guy's kind of a dick. But, you know, he's not a good person, right? I mean, what he's doing is, you know, I mean, besides being illegal, you know, he's hurting people and damaging people and, you know, doing some things that are just really irresponsible, right? You know, the whole working, posing as a doctor, you know, and that sort of thing. And, you know, the havoc he is wreaking. And it's a weird sort of thing, but he comes across almost as likable, Right. I mean, you kind of have some sympathy for him. And it's partly because of the way that story is told and partly because one of the things I see in sevens is that a lot of them, you know, when they're less healthy, have this sense that they can charm their way out of stuff. So they're just going to go and do what they want to do, because why shouldn't I, right? There's fun over there. Why shouldn't I go have it? And I'll just kind of figure my way out of it, right? And uh, charm my way out of it. So again, I, I don't want to cast that on, you know, every seven, because it's not. It's a real low-level sort of behavior. But I did have that. Because when I was watching the movie, I'm thinking, like you were saying, Tom, is this a three... Is it a seven? You know, leaning toward a seven. Is it? Is it a three played by a seven or whatever? But I think I would agree with you. It was more sevenish than threeish, um, as the character was told. The degree to which a seven is impelled to go find the fun, as you put it, is the degree to which there's some part of them that feels yeah. trapped or sensitive to being trapped, and they they trap themselves in in essence by the time they're adults. Mm-hmm. But they could have grown up in an environment where people were bored and boring or there were limited options. There was, uh, they had to go to Catholic school and they were victims of judgmental ones. You know, there'll be uh, different stories from different people. But I always see it in terms of polarities that way. Right. I thought the father, the Christopher Walken character, not one of his you know, more important roles, mm-hmm. but felt a bit seven-ish to me, right? In, in some ways, you know, this idea of being the mouse that, you know, stirs up the cream, you know, sort of thing. And always, you know, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. I'll bounce back. This will be good. This will be good. So that felt, you know, kind of a seven-ish theme there too. Tom, you might have an opinion on this. I don't have a thought, but it intrigued me watching I the think movie. Christopher seven. Walken. Seven? Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Walken is one of my all-time favorites. I mean, again, this wasn't one of his more significant roles, but, you know, I I would listen to Christopher Walken read the phone book because I just think he's just so interesting. And, you know, whenever I see interviews with him, he's just such a light spirit and, you know, again, positive, fun, you know, without being goofy and Robin williams this, just, you know, this light kind of, you know, what's there to be sad about? You know, life is good, you know, 
dancer, you know, singer, all that sort of stuff. So you could you could probably find a recording of a standard comedian reading the phone book as Christopher Walken. He's one of the most yeah most frequent subjects <laughs> of comedy impersonations. And the stuff that he did in this movie, as I was watching it, I was like, "Yep, that sounds like somebody imitating Christopher Walken." It's like doing his famous cadence with no self consciousness whatsoever. <laughs> right. Uh, there was a film he was in called The Comfort of Strangers. Oh, I love that. My father was a very large man. Yeah, that where the wasn't that the where famous was the line young from that? couple in uh, Venice, I think it was, or yeah, Natasha Richardson. Yeah, it was Venice, Rupert Everett, and Liam Neeson. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. And uh, I'm not easily frightened at movies, but he scared the hell out of me in that film. And he later said that he scared the hell out of himself. Yeah. That, that was a creepy, intimidating performance in a creepy and intimidating movie. Absolutely. Did you ever see that one, TJ? No. No, oh, I've read Strangers the book. Yet. But, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Check it out. It was one of his more compelling roles. I, I always, for me, you know, there's so many iconic roles of Christopher Walken, but I just love... Uh, the one with Christian Slater, the Tarantino written movie with Christian Slater oh, and True Romance. Uh, True Romance, thank you. I just think he's, you know, off the charts wonderful in True Romance. But uh. are you interested in learning more about our approach to the Enneagram? Go to awarenesstoaction.com and check out our certification program. We offer a clear, concise, business-friendly, and science-minded approach while maintaining the depth of traditional approaches to the system. At Awareness to Action International, we're the leading innovators in the theory and pragmatic applications of this system to all aspects of the work environment, including leadership and personal development, team building, diversity and culture, and managing change. However, this approach is not just for the business world. A lot of people who attend our trainings do so for their own self-development or spiritual growth. Our certification program is one of only a handful of curricula accredited as a school by the International Enneagram Association. It is currently being conducted virtually and combines live sessions with asynchronous learning. Again, find out more at awarenesstoaction.com. All right, great. So other thoughts on Catch Me If You Can. TJ? Yeah, just to build on what you were both saying before about him likely being more of a seven than a three. One of the things about the way he's presented in the movie is that every single new role that he takes just kind of drops into his lap. There's no planning. There's no analysis of like, what's going to work? What am I good at? And there's a scene when he's faking being a doctor where he vomits at the sight of blood. So clearly he hasn't thought this through, but these things just keep dropping into his lap. So he stumbles into, you know, faking being the teacher in a French class when he moves to a new high school and he's being bullied. He stumbles into how to forge bigger checks when the desk guy tells him that they, they cash payroll checks up to $300. He stumbles into the fact that airlines cash checks at the airport for their employees or that there's such a thing as a deadhead where he can get a free ride to the next city. So all of those things or you know, escaping being caught as a doctor just by impulsively proposing marriage to one of the nurses and then going to visit her family in, in Louisiana and then she's deciding, I'll be a lawyer now. Like It's not because he feels the net closing in around him. It's just, this is this new thing. It's just put in front of him. He says, ah, okay, I'll go with that. And he does. And he makes a go of it. And charms his way through it by watching TV shows, apparently. Which gets to the other big point, something I've mentioned before, is why let truth get in the way of a good story? When you analyze this story with any 
critical sense, it just doesn't hold up. There's so many things like that of like passing the bar exam with two weeks study or being a doctor in any functional way when you can't even stand the sight of blood. Or there's a scene when the law is closing in on him at the Miami airport and he then recruits a bunch of university students to be stewardesses and then flies out with them and uses them as a smoke screen so that the agents don't see him. Well, why not fly out of literally anywhere else? And, you know, he's taking them to Europe ostensibly. Well, how do you do that without passports? Like, and then eventually when he's arrested in France, the French police show up with guns. French police don't carry guns. So there's many different things like that in the movie that don't hold up. But again, Spielberg is just so thrilling of a director that you probably don't ask these questions until much later. Or if you're actively studying the film in order to talk about it in the podcast. It was a story of opportunism. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No forethought, no planning, just it's going to happen. And, and back to your point, Tom, about the uh, sexual or you know, what I would call the transmitting seven, I completely oh, yeah. agree with you about this idea of distractibility, right? So the, the other sevens aren't as distractible, right? You know, I mean, all sevens, all of us are to some extent. But, but what I find is that with the social or navigating a seven, there's more of a concern that I might get bored at some point, which is different. Transmitting seven? No, no. With the with the navigating seven, there's this idea that you know I have to have things lined up for the future. I have to have options, right? So I think of my son who's a navigating seven. I've got these friends that I skateboard with, and these friends that I play basketball, and these friends that I do this with, and these friends that I do that one. So if I start to get bored with this, I have a backup plan. Okay. That's, you know, kind of their modus operandi. Whereas with the transmitting or sexual seven, I can be deeply engaged in something and then, oh, wow, what was that bright, shiny object? Right. You know, and, you know, get that kind of distractibility. So it's a different sort of energy uh, among the different subtypes. Right. With the sexual subtype, they're protecting themselves with a veil of fantasy and story. Mm -hmm. And that takes the edge off of bruising early circumstances or uh, limitations that they understand are characteristic of the world around them. The last one you were talking about, navigating? No. What's the other one? Yeah, or what others would call social. You know, I call it navigating. So the stuff you just said about that, to me, would be about the self-preservation seven. Hmm. Uh, well, it's an area of disagreement with us that we can explore sometime. But for me, with the preserving seven, there is this element of I have a kind of tight support network, right? I have a close group of friends who are there, but it's more of a focus on the environment and the things in it, right? I find comfort in the nest and the necessities of the home and that sort of thing. So, but we can get into the nuances of the subtypes of the seven at another time, but the realm of uh, chosen family also. Yes. Yes. I would agree with you. Absolutely. Something there in preserving seven, this idea of, you know, my family's. And it's, it seems social, but because right. it's people, but you're, you're, you're palisading yourself off against the harshness of reality exactly. by the people that you exactly. check in with and stay, stay on a circuit with. Right. All right. Good. Okay. So 
four movies from Steven Spielberg, all of them, you know, in, in some way capturing a seven-ish theme. And I think that you can watch almost any Steven Spielberg movie, and there are some exceptions. I don't see a whole lot of seven-ish energy in Munich or Schindler's List or, you know, a few of the others. But, you know, the, a lot of these themes that illustrate what it's like to be a seven or some of the themes of human nature that we tend to associate with sevens just pop up all over Steven Spielberg's work, right? Off the top of your heads, guys, any other movies you would think of that capture that? Just as kind of honorable mention. Schindler's movies. List, actually. Uh, yeah? Yeah, because of the... Ah, with Schindler himself? The framing device of it. Spielberg, except for Munich, which is a tough movie, I think, and a good one. Yeah. He goes for positive counterexamples. Amistad is like mm. that. It's the one time white mm -hmm. people stood up and on behalf of slaves. Schindler's List, mm. this guy is the exception. And the movie Always, that one's about a ghost, and it basically says you're not going to die. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think this kind of <laughs> runs through it. Even, even Saving Private Ryan. The framing device within that is they're going to go find Private Ryan because he's the last brother of a family in Iowa. And yeah. it's got to do with a, a counterexample to what is then shown, which is, I thought it was almost an anti-war movie. Oh, absolutely. A lot of it was brutal, but the, there's yes. a warm fuzzy at the end and the beginning. When Saving Private Ryan came out, I took my younger brother, who was 20 years younger than me, and a couple of his friends to see it. And walking out of it, one of them said, war is terrible. I hope we never have to go to another war, right? So I agree with you. It was kind of an anti-war movie. And I haven't seen Schindler's List since seeing it in the theaters. I, I have to say, it's not a movie that I've been able to bring myself to rewatch. As, as great a movie as it was, I just... It's about the Holocaust, you know. I mean, I just find Holocaust movies to be difficult to watch a second time. Call me a, call me a baby, I don't know. Uh, if I could just add one thing, that in Saving Private Ryan, in Saving Private Ryan, the, the whole purpose of the mission is to avoid the mother's grief, basically. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Go ahead, TJ, you were going to say something. Yeah, I also haven't seen Schindler's List since it was in the theaters, but something that came up in some interviews is it's possible Schindler was a seven in that he was an unlikely person right. to do what he did. And that's the whole point of the movie is that he was a bon vivant and a not particularly good businessman, but he liked drinking and he liked womanizing. Mm -hmm. And even he himself didn't realize mm -hmm. that he had this capacity for courage yeah. and greatness. And that after the war, he also failed as a businessman. He just wasn't that good at it. So that's a theme you see a lot in Spielberg movies is that the ordinary person, the completely ordinary person is the person who has greatness in them, which I think has a lot to do with Spielberg himself. You know, in any interview with him, he's probably wearing a baseball cap and a checkered shirt. Like he just looks like a normal guy. His movies are unselfconsciously full of product placement and TVs being on and food all over the place and he just doesn't seem to have any aversion at all to the messiness mm -hmm. of regular life and something richard dreyfus told me is that spielberg loves suburbia and always has 
And it's interesting to think of this guy with kind of a Mozart-level talent being in the body of yes. just a completely ordinary average guy. And in some ways, E.T. is almost an analogy for that. He described E.T. as wanting to make a movie about a 10-year-old boy who develops a friendship with a 900-year-old being. And in some ways, Spielberg is that. He's this eternal youth. There's a 10-year-old boy in him. And then there's this wisdom of somebody far beyond his years that kind of gives him this genius with the, the Peter camera. Peter Pan, yes. Another movie is Hook, also. Peter Pan, which he talked about making for years. Peter Pan, that's type. A couple other yeah. movies I want to mention. One is Sugarland Express, which is his first feature film starring Goldie Hawn, a famous seven. And the plot of that movie is that she gets out of prison, breaks her husband out of prison so they can go retrieve their, their baby that's been taken away from her. But they don't really seem to have any kind of a plan. She hasn't thought things through. They're just chucking and jiving. And just like, you know, the character in Catch Me If You Can, you have to ask at some point is like, how did you think this was going to turn out? Like, you didn't think you'd get caught? But it's fun and it's exciting. And the whole movie is basically a chase because the police are pursuing them right from the beginning. So it's a feature length chase, as is The Adventures of Tintin, animated movie. It's just one cartoonish chase after another. And I rewatched Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, neither of which I'd seen in years. I'd, I'd seen them both in the theater when they came out and loved them. But as I was watching them now, especially like right after watching Raiders, you can see it's like, oh, he's doing kind of a seven thing, which is. This thing was fun. Let's do it again. Let's have more of it. But it's wearing thin. And all the ingredients yes. are there. It should be satisfying, but it isn't. And it, you can't really put your finger on why. Right. They're not great films, but they're very interesting to watch to show that trajectory of the way a seven yes. operates. And I haven't even seen the Jurassic Park sequels, but I understand it's the same thing with those. Yeah. It's almost as if I'm kind of boring myself with this, right? I'm doing it for whatever reason, but I'm losing interest and not putting my all into it. So, Well, the most recent Indiana Jones film was full of CGI, computer-generated graphics. And you could really tell the difference between what we were talking about earlier yes. with Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example. And it got bigger and more elaborate. It made a lot of money, but it was... It was stupid and, you know, just just really didn't work, <laughs> I thought. Just because he survives a, a, an atomic bomb explosion in a refrigerator? I mean, what, yeah, you think that's well, stupid? That's, that's just common sense. That's, that's what you do. Yeah. <laughs> Duck and cover. <laughs> All right. Very good. Quick Goldie Hawn story since you brought her up. I was actually, I, years ago, I went to see a talk by the Dalai Lama at American University in uh, Washington. It was, a you know, an auditorium, about 5,000 people or so. And, you know, the Tibet thing was very big. This was the late 70s, you know. So the Richard Gears and the Goldie Hawns and the uh, Adam Yalk for, from Beastie Boys were there. And so it was a day-long talk by the Dalai Lama. And Goldie Hawn with her, was there with her daughter, Kate Hudson, who was not famous yet at the time. But both of them talked which surprised me. I stood within five feet of them, and they're both relatively tall. Uh, and uh, the daughter, Kate Hudson, one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life, you know, my wife aside. But, but there was a lunch break in the middle of the day, and there was kind of this special area for the celebrities. Okay, And Goldie Hawn brought her own masseuse 
to the talk by the Dalai Lama and had a massage table set up. And because I was with, you know, a guy that was handicapped, I had kind of special seating. And so we could see Goldie Hawn getting a massage in the middle of a talk by the Dalai Lama. So if that's not seven-ish, I don't know what it is, right? (laughs) Well, in in all fairness, he's not that relaxing to listen to. (laughs) Well, I had a fun time listening to him. It was, it was funny because you could tell him and his interpreter had their, their gig worked out. The Dalai Lama would talk in Tibetan for like 10 minutes, you know, and then the interpreter would talk for half an hour straight, you know, just so they had mm-hmm. their act down. But it was an interesting event. Anyway, so this has been our episode on Enneagram Type 7 and Steven Spielberg. So, Tom, we want to thank you for joining us. This has been a good conversation. I always enjoy having you on the podcast, Tom. You bring a great depth of uh, knowledge. Uh, Tom, tell us where people can find out more about you and your work. My website's called The Change Works, all one word, dot com. And that's, that's the best place to go. And then uh, I'm on Facebook also. And periodically pretty active, and then other times not at all. Check out Tom's work if you're not familiar with it. I can't imagine you're not if you're listening to this podcast. But Tom is one of the more significant Enneagram teachers in the world. You know, I tend to be fairly critical in my consumption of Enneagram content. Tom is somebody worth listening to. So uh, check him out online and enjoy his, his material. All right. So thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. So this is Mario Sakura saying goodbye to everybody, bringing this episode to a close, and we will see you next time. You've been listening to the Enneagram in a Movie podcast, which is produced and edited by Seth Creekmore and is part of the Awareness to Action podcast network. Don't forget to go online and support the podcast by taking a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. See you next time.